The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Live from our nation's capital. President Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion pandemic relief package. We're not going to hear any more about Operation Warp Speed. They're going to be calling it the COVID response. We're talking right now about 2024 jockeying amongst Republicans. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? The House has been voting for this stimulus package basically for months. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. And I'm Jeannie Shanzano. I'm in for Kevin Cirilli today. And joining me is Bloomberg political contributor Rick Davis. And later we are going to be talking to the congresswoman from Michigan, Haley Stevens. We're really anxious to get her thoughts at the end of this really extraordinary week in our nation's capital. And I guess the third, maybe the second and a half full day of the Biden administration. At the end of this first week of the Biden administration, uh, we had the president today focusing again uh, for this third day on the pandemic. And in particular, he was talking about the economic pain that has been caused by the virus. He came out to the press in a really somber mood this afternoon after meeting with his economic advisors. And he talked about the fact that we had another 900,000 applying for unemployment. But he began his remarks by talking about the long lines for food, people who are fearing eviction, and the general hopelessness that so many Americans are feeling as a result of the economic fallout due to the coronavirus. And I believe we have some sound on that. We cannot, will not let people go hungry. We cannot let people be evicted because of nothing they did themselves. They cannot watch people lose their jobs. And we have to act. We have to act now. And so that was the president today. Um, and we are awaiting really more details about the plan that the administration is putting forward, um, nearly $2 trillion in a relief package that they have proposed. It's going to be, and, and he signed today, two executive orders on food assistance and increasing the minimum wage for federal workers um, to $15. And at the White House today, we heard the, uh, the new National Economic Director, Brian Deese, and he was describing some of the high stakes. So let's hear a little bit about what Brian Deese had to say before we bring Rick and our other guest in. Retail sales fell last month, and just yesterday we saw another 900,000 Americans file for unemployment insurance. Um, that's a weekly rate that is higher than any week during the Great Recession. So joining me t t today to talk a little bit about the Biden administration's efforts here on the economic front, we have Rick Davis, Bloomberg political contributor, partner at Stone Court Capital, and former campaign manager for John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign. 
I, th I think we were just hearing some sound. It sounded like Jennifer Saki <laughs> or Jen Saki. Yeah, I think uh, Jen Saki is trying to interrupt you. She <laughs> wants on Bloomberg bad. Let's I, book her next week. She interrupted my my intro of Tyler. So Tyler, I'm sorry about that. But Rick and Tyler, it's really great to have you. And again, just to, to repeat that, he's the Republican strategist, fundraiser, and president of the of Allegiance Strategies. Um, and so Rick, yeah, let's turn Jen down for just a minute. <laughs> and let me just get your thoughts about these two executive orders. Um, we have a new president who has signed uh, many executive orders in just the first three days, but two today in particular on food insecurity and raising the minimum wage. Yeah, I think this has been really a productive week for the new administration. It's only, you know, two and a half days old uh, as far as their time in office. And and these stopgap funding measures that he signed into uh, executive orders today are really uh, uh, meant to try and relieve the pain that has been caused by economic dislocation in this community. Uh, uh, increasing the food aid uh, in order for families who need assistance uh, to be able to get it. I, I, it's really quite phenomenal that we still see 11 months into this pandemic, huge lines of cars going to food banks uh, of people who in their lifetime never thought they would need this kind of assistance, but uh, are anxious to get it. And it's really uh, I think the way this Biden administration looks is an obligation of the government to be there when they need it. And of course, extensions of unemployment insurance for those who are seeking jobs who otherwise wouldn't be qualified. Again, just trying to create a gap in the economic dislocation of so many of these families who are struggling because they've lost their employment due to COVID and, and aren't likely to get it back uh, as a result of this economy until COVID allows these companies and, and services to reopen. So uh, I think he's, he's putting a, uh, a Band-Aid on uh, the economy as much as he can in the short term, uh, but it also points to the broader game. And all of these have been put in the context of they need their stimulus package approved by Congress so that they can really put lead on the target in these communities with money from government. Yeah, and I want to, we want to move and talk about the stimulus. Before we do that, Tyler, let's bring you in here. I think the number that surprised me today was 50 million Americans food insecure as a result of the pandemic. And, you know, the, the really somber tone of the president and the, uh, his economic director uh, really struck me in terms of looking at some of those numbers. Well, of course it is, and it's heart-wrenching, and it speaks to the fact that we're not out of this pandemic yet and that the economic pain and misery from the pandemic is not distributed equally across the country, right? There are a lot of people who have made money in the last 12 months, but there are many more people who've lost their jobs, who are making less money, who've lost their businesses. Um, I think that all of this is going to just continue to put a spotlight on Congress and the fact that they still have not done their job. And I am happy to give uh, our new president, Joe Biden, credit for moving swiftly, you know, issuing these executive orders. But what I don't want it to become is just another, you know, administration governing by executive order. This is not how our, our democracy is supposed to operate. Um, I'm somebody who criticized President Trump for trying to just govern by executive decree. And, you know, look, it's early and President Biden has to take some drastic measures here. But what I don't want it to become is I don't want it to become the norm for this administration. I want him to work with Congress, work with people in both parties and actually pass some legislation that won't just sunset when this administration ends. And that's what I think is the real point is Congress has a job to do to step up for the people who are hungry 
to step up for the fact that we still don't have a testing regimen. We still don't have PPE, right? Like, we all know this. That's what I'm hoping President Biden can bring that's new is some real leadership, and that can't just be through executive orders. And Tyler, you raise a great point um, about the sort of governing via executive order. And and Rick, what do you think, because it's something I debate with colleagues about all the time, are the dangers of what has become sort of the norm in the modern presidency, in the modern era that Tyler was just talking about, this whiplash of governance by executive order when Congress has failed in many instances to act? Yeah, Jeannie, I think whiplash is a good example because that's what we're experiencing this week. Uh, Donald Trump, probably one of the greatest users of the pen uh, to write these executive orders uh, of any modern president, uh, is now seeing many of his efforts to unwound in the stroke of a pen by Joe Biden. And, and I think uh, Tyler's made a really good point that isn't well understood in the public, is these are executive orders by the president. Any president can change that executive order. It does not have the weight of law. The president doesn't make laws. Congress makes laws. And when Congress makes a law, only Congress can change the law. And so that creates stability in the system. So you don't have, as you put it so well, Jeannie, whiplash every time a new administration comes in. Yeah. And Tyler, it's, I was just talking to somebody about the fact that, you know, the legislation that Barack Obama passed, whether you like it or not, in terms of the Affordable Care Act, similarly, Donald Trump's, uh, you know, tax bill, those things are really, really, to Rick's point, difficult to change and unlikely to change, as we've seen, at least over the sh- in the short period. Yet when you are governing in this way, as we've seen in the modern era, we do see swift changes in policy, one administration to the next. And so that raises the question about why Congress itself is not acting and the president is taking these executive actions. Yeah, and there's this... This it's a difficult tension between Congress and the White House because every time the president does an executive action, he's taking a little pressure off of Congress to act. And more and more, they just seem more than happy to abdicate their responsibilities. But this is why a 50-50 Senate, a, you know, it's totally tied up. That's a really interesting dynamic because it's going to force people to have to work together. And I don't yet know how they're going to respond, because so far, you know, 50-50, a lot of people will hear, you know, the Democrats have control of the Senate. And they do whenever there's a bill that needs a tiebreaker, right, then the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, will break the tie. Um, And she casts that determining vote. And that is the one small way in which Democrats have control of the chamber, because otherwise, right now, they're trying to figure out how to even stand up the Senate and organize themselves. And the vice president doesn't have a say in that. It's actually only the 100 elected senators who have to agree on how they're going to cooperate in a tied environment. And I find that endlessly interesting because they're going to have to come to an agreement um, or they can't even introduce bills. Right. Like they can't they can't do anything except by unanimous consent until they agree on the basic terms. And what many of your listeners are already going to be hearing about is that Mitch McConnell wants Chuck Schumer to agree that they will not make any further changes to the filibuster. And I think that, you know, Biden sees this. He came out today that he does not want to end the filibuster. Um, We heard Jen Psaki a second ago. Come on. Look, she said it herself from the podium today. They do not want to change the filibuster. Mitch McConnell doesn't want to. Chuck Schumer right now is to the left of the president, 
And I think until we get that sorted out and also get our arms around the coronavirus pandemic, we can't start legislating. But I do want to just say I'm optimistic because if we can come to a basic agreement of how the Senate is going to function, I think that actually these 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans, the fact that they have to work together means that I hope that they will work together. And Tyler, you brought us just where we want. Jen Psaki interrupted you before, but we're going to come back at the other side of this break and hear a little bit more from her, Chuck Schumer, and Mitch McConnell on this very issue of the filibuster. So I am Jeannie Shianzano, and this is Bloomberg. We will be right back. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. And I'm Jeannie Shanzano in for Kevin Cirilli, who is on vacation. And here with me is Rick Davis, Tyler Deaton. And we're looking forward to speaking with Congresswoman Haley Stevens from Michigan in just a few minutes. But I just want to go back to what Tyler had raised before the break when we were talking about the administration's attempts to address the economic fallout from COVID. He had made the case that one of the big issues that has arisen has to do with the filibuster. And of course, the reason is, as many executive orders as the new president has signed in the last few days, they simply cannot govern via via executive order. Congress has got to allocate the funds. And so it has been raised repeatedly as to where the president stands on the issue of the legislative filibuster. And I think for the second time in just a couple days, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, was asked about that today at the White House briefing. And I think we have sound on what she had to say in response to that question. The president's position uh, hasn't changed, uh, but uh, I will say he's conveyed in conversations with uh, both uh, now Leader Schumer and Senator McConnell that uh, they need to have their conversations, of course, but he is eager to move his uh, rescue plan forward. He is eager to get relief to the American public. He wants to work with both of them to do exactly that, and he wants it to be a bipartisan bill. So that is his objective. So his position hasn't changed. He opposes overturning the legislative filibuster? He has spoken to this many times. His position has not changed. And, and before I get a reaction from Rick and Tyler, let's just hear, if we can, a little bit of the back and forth between Mitch McConnell and, and Chuck Schumer, the leaders of their respective Republican and Democratic parties in the Senate. I think we have sound on this as well. If we're going to truly replicate the 2001 agreement, we need to reaffirm this crucial part of the foundation that lay beneath it. We have three essential items on our plate. One, the confirmation of President Biden's cabinet and other key officials. 
Two, legislation to provide desperately needed COVID relief. Three, a second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. The Senate must and will do all three. So, Rick Davis, um, what do you think in terms of Senate's ability to do all three of those things, particularly if they don't tackle or get rid of the legislative veto? Jeannie, I, I, I now me. realize <laughs> we're back in government because those were three people trying desperately not to say something that actually would offend the other person. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, maybe there is uh, a change in the winds of Washington. Uh, it's just it, look, I mean, the Senate has its own rules, right? They, they govern themselves. And and what Mitch McConnell was talking about in his uh, quote this now is that we had a 50 50 Senate back in 2001 and it was led by. Trent Lott on the Republican side and Tom Daschle on the Democratic side. And they put together a set of rules on how to govern. And 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 they've dusted those off 20 years later. They're right back to a 50-50 Senate. And they said, look, we've been through this once before. The Senate loves precedent. Let's do it again. And one of the bedrocks of those was something that, that, that President Biden, as Senator Biden, for many, many years defended vociferously, which is you ought to be able to maintain a filibuster, which is you need 60 votes to cut off debate to go to a piece of legislation and not just 51. So um, my guess is uh, President Biden's trying not to offend Senator Schumer, who would love to have a grab here and and be able to pass legislation with 51 votes, not 50, 60. And, uh, and, and, and my guess is Mitch McConnell's trying to get a deal done as quick as he can because he doesn't want to see that rule change now because he's not in charge. So uh, I think all this sort of works its way out over the weekend. There'll be lots of calls going back and forth. But at the end of the day, I think you go right into the business that, that, that Leader, Mc, Leader Schumer uh, was talking about, which is confirming these, these uh, cabinet-level positions, uh, getting on with this impeachment. Uh, it'll start potentially on Monday. And, uh, and trying to pass the stimulus bill, which was this, the topic of the day out of the White House. So, so Tyler, it, l- let me just get you in here for a minute. Do you think that um, e- any of these institutionalists, really, as I would describe them, McConnell, Biden, Schumer, that they want to see the filibuster go? would love to see the filibuster go, and I would not view him as an institutionalist in the same category as Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell. However... I think that we've got to be realistic, like, and Rick knows this, there's ways around the filibuster already, right? Like Obamacare was passed under reconciliation. reconciliation. (laughs) Exactly. And that's how Trump's tax bill was passed. And Jeannie, you mentioned that those were like, you know, signature accomplishments by both of these presidents, you know, whether you like them or not, that's what they're known for. And they did it under reconciliation rules and bypassed the filibuster, which is allowed. There's only a few times, you know, I'm not going to get too nerdy on this, but like, (laughs) You can't do everything that way. And this is the point, is that, uh, you know, in 2001, the rules looked different. The parties weren't as polarized. And since then, Harry Reid nuked the filibuster for circuit judges. McConnell then nuked the filibuster for Supreme Court judges. And at some point here, everybody's got to lay down their weapons. And, And this is my concern, is that if they don't come to this agreement at the very front end, then the issue of the filibuster, like, is it staying? Is it not? Will it go? Won't it? It is going to plague Joe Biden in his entire presidency because nothing will get done. If we just keep arguing about the rules themselves, we'll never get to legislating. And so 
you know, I, longtime listeners know I will be the first to criticize Leader McConnell whenever I think he's, he's misjudging a situation. But I think he has this spot on. I think it's right for him to take the stand at the beginning. I think it's interesting that he's closer to Joe Biden on this than Chuck Schumer. And I think that a lot of other Senate Democrats are as well. And let's get this done. Like, let's put this behind us and then we can start to legislate. And Tyler, we love when you're nerdy. Nerdy is us. We love it. More reconciliation and filibuster talk. When we get back, we're also going to be speaking with the Congresswoman from Michigan. So we will see you on the other side of this break. And I am again, Jeannie Shanzano, in for Kevin Cirilli, and I'm joined by Rick Davis, and we are really fortunate to be speaking with Representative Haley Stevens, who represents the 11th District in Michigan. So, Congresswoman, welcome. It's terrific to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be on the show. And so I wanted to just jump right into what President Biden was talking about today, if we can. Um, He and Brian Deese, his National Economic Council director, were talking, obviously, about all the economic challenges that you're so well aware of in the country as a result of the pandemic. And I wanted to ask you, as a member of the New Democrat Coalition, how do you respond to your Republican colleagues who say that this $1.9 trillion bill is too large, even people, moderates like Mitt Romney? So the New Democrats in particular have been in favor of what's called stabilizers, a continuum so, continual source of funding that would kick in in the event of ricochets uh, in our economy, downturns, uh, in, in employment, uh, small business closures, et cetera, so that we didn't need to keep coming back to the well. And I think what's evident right now and what you heard the president and our National Economic Council uh, director, Brian Deese, talking about today is that we're still in a moment of triage here. Um, we still have 8 million Americans who didn't even get their first stimulus check. Uh, and that's in, in some of Biden's early plans. And so, look, we want to be all of government. We, we obviously want to come to the table with colleagues on the other side of the aisle. But listen to our chair, chairman of the Federal Reserve. Listen to Jerome Powell and what he has said about where we need to take this uh, this next phase of what is responding to the worst job market in modern history that a president has inherited and think about how we're going to carry Americans through and our small businesses through. Hey, uh, Congresswoman, uh, this is Rick Davis out of Washington. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I want to pick up on that because I don't think some people really recognize the depths of the uh, concerns with the economy. We've all been talking so much about COVID in the last week, especially since uh, uh, President Biden has taken office. But Brian Deese did make a big point. He said, you know, we could be in very serious economic hole if we don't do something. And, And you actually had some practical experience with a government, you know, as a Republican, I have to call it a bailout, but you can call it whatever you want. But with the presidential task force in the auto industry, where the government said, look, we have an industry that's critical to our uh, national infrastructure, and we're going to put our finances to work to shore it up. It worked, I think, by largely everybody's agreement, it worked perfectly. And so are there opportunities coming up where we can look at industries like the hotel industry or the travel or the uh, other industries really badly affected by coronavirus and say, maybe we do something similar to that? 
Sure. And the private sector talks about ROI. And as a uh, appropriator of federal dollars, I talk about ROS, return on spend, return on the taxpayer dollars spend. And certainly when you see Brian D. saying, we are at a very precious moment in our economy, either we're going to choose to act or we're going to be in a race to the bottom. We're going to choose to buoy industries, which will I, I think, give us a return on spend. Uh, the countless small businesses who, through no fault of their own, are suffering some of the worst effects of this pandemic. This is something we lived through, by the way, in 09, in 08, 09, with the large amount of small businesses of a multitude of sectors that closed down that were never fully recovered. And we're facing that, but at much more enormous levels. And you can look at states like Florida versus Michigan, and yet you're, you're still seeing a slowdown in consumer activity. I know in Michigan, we're working really closely with our restaurants and our travel and tourism industry. We want to see everyone succeed. I, our movie theaters are open for the first time, and yet you go into a movie theater, and a lot of times it's just one or two people in, in yep. the entire Not just dark, but un, yeah, yeah. unoccupied. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, you know, and those are, those are anecdotes, but when you're looking at – the whole of our economy. And, and, and a good example of this, right, is something that I've been working on for a long time, pre-pandemic in Congress on pension relief. You know, you, you kick the can down the road and the problem becomes a lot worse than if you just choose to tackle it now. You know, we're, we I just introduced a bill on this the, for our multi-employer pensions and single-employer pensions because of the solvency issues, right? And so, so either we're going to address this, we're at a boiling point of needing to address it now, or they're going to implode, and so will our Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. And this isn't to cry wolf, but I, I'm optimistic about this plan. I've worked with Brian Deese before. He was on our auto rescue team. Uh, he's one of the first people I called when the pandemic hit. And, I, you know, it was before he was in the role he's in now, but I, I you know, asked for his advice on what we needed to do in Congress. And I'll tell you, the measure of how far we could we can go does feel really wide because of the scope of this problem. We are the greatest economy. We've got the greatest workforce, but we've got to make up for a lot of ground lost and the shakiness in our labor market right now. Congresswoman, uh, we know that there's uh, targeted $160 billion in funding for national vaccine program in the Biden stimulus package. But I'm curious, how is it going in Michigan right now? I mean, you represent uh, big suburbs outside of Detroit, um, obviously an area heavily impacted by uh, uh, COVID. And, and I'm curious, are you seeing action on the ground? And, and is, is, it, is it likely to improve in the short term uh, with, with a new Biden administration? So comparatively, we are in the top five of states to get the vaccine out. We're doing a great job. We're getting them administered. But talking to people on the ground, they'll tell you it feels like getting concert tickets, trying to get their shot. It's a different uh, system. Uh, it's not just calling your doctor. It's going through a hospital. It's registering online. This is still very foreign to people in many respects. Um, I have been seeing people get the vaccine. I'm glad to see it, but not enough, right? We still got a long way to go to even just get that you know, 65 and over population covered. We've also obviously prioritized our educators at the county level, Oakland County, Wayne County in particular, doing a phenomenal job uh, ensuring that our essential workers are also priority in line to get so. But I am very pleased to see the president's request for additional funding, use of the Defense Production Act, 
Uh, we need human capital to administer this vaccine. It's not just a one and done, as we know. You know, we need to input the data. We need to monitor people shortly after they get the vaccine, and and we need to get everyone covered. So, Congresswoman, um, we're really, really fortunate that you've agreed to stay over the break because I did want to follow up on some of what you said, um, particularly in terms of economic relief and your point about tackling the issue now and some of the criticism surrounding the arbitrary deadlines that have been put in place. So we will be right back talking with Congresswoman from Michigan, Haley Stevens. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. And I'm Jeannie Shianzano in for Kevin Cirilli on this Friday afternoon. And along with Rick Davis, um, we are delighted to be speaking with the Congresswoman from Michigan's 11th District, um, Haley Stevens. And Congresswoman, before the break, um, we were talking a little bit about the economic fallout from the pandemic, and we wanted to switch gears a little bit, and grateful you stayed over the break, and ask you a little bit about the riot um, insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. And in particular, we heard Speaker Pelosi say on Thursday that she and uh, other members of leadership and members of the Democratic caucus believe that Republican House members should face and may face consequences over their actions leading up to the riot. So I wanted to ask you your view on that. Well, I have been very alarmed and disgusted by some of the comments coming um, from members before the the riot ensued, uh, in particular those uh, calling for violence outright, um, though saying that today is 1776 and potential allegations, and this is what is uh, something that is definitely alarming to um, everyone paying attention to this, but just potential allegations of members of Congress cavorting or coordinating with those who participated in the uh temporary overthrow of our government through violent force. Um, that needs to be taken seriously. Uh, it needs to be investigated. And if um, anyone committed such action, they need to be held accountable. Uh, this is Rick Davis again. Uh, Congresswoman, I, I, let's follow up on that a little bit, because uh, what does holding them accountable mean? We know that some of them, like the Arizona delegation members, Paul Gosar and Andy Biggs, who's now retired from Congress, um, uh, were implicated in the planning of the uh, march on the Capitol. And so we assume uh, from what we've heard in other 
interviews we've had this week that there are investigations going on in the government ops uh, committee of Congress. And, and so what are the tools that you can use to uh, correct these kinds of uh, potential violations? Yeah, well, it begins with an ethics complaint and an ethics overview, but this is where history uh, is very significant and very important for us. Um, in the 70s, after the historic uh, Nixon class of 74 was elected, they had to expel two members of Congress for misusing their member account funds for paying you know, two members who were paying, you know, mistresses and, you know, just abusing, abusing the federal dollar. And, you know, this isn't, it, it always feels like things are very political, right? Yeah, you know, the 24-7 campaign and, you know, all the dark money in politics. But there comes a point where you have to govern, right? And, and you have to govern uh, with transparency into the letter of the law. And if people committed actions that were against the the oath that that certainly a bar that we're holding here. I know it was obviously very upsetting to see you know over a hundred members of the Republican conference vote to decertify the electoral college results of Arizona and Pennsylvania. But in particular, violence can never be a means to a political end, and this political end was built on. A conspiracy. It was built on a big lie that this election was fraudulent, and, and that uh, the claim that the, the that the, the outgoing president was refusing to concede because he claimed he won the election, and it and it went too far. And this also speaks to why the House had to impeach President Trump for a second time, um, in part because he failed to live up to his constitutional oath. He was called during this violent insurrection, when his government was being taken over, when his vice president, when the vice president of the United States had to hide for his life, when everyone in the building had to hide for their life. Yep. And he didn't answer that call. He didn't keep us safe. Yeah, Congresswoman, on just a related point, the reports yesterday um, that a member of the House from Maryland had tried to enter the House floor with a weapon and um, was turned away at, at the checkpoint. Um, we've heard from some members of the House that they don't feel safe with their colleagues on the floor. Have you experienced or felt that way? Do you hear that from your, your colleagues on the floor? I, a lot of this is just code of conduct. You know, you don't need to be entering the House floor with a weapon, okay? There's no need for that. And there's, you know, and in terms of the safety and uh, protocol procedures that we have in place and all the things that our Capitol Police have been through, the stress uh, and and the attack that our Capitol Police also incurred on January 6th, I'm, I'm really disappointed in my colleague who who attempted to bring in that weapon. And I, I do find it threatening uh, in, in many respects. I just don't see a need for it. You know, we've got members of Congress who have, um, uh, you know, AK-47s hanging on their walls. You know, we, in pre-pandemic times, have groups of children coming through the, the halls of Congress on tours. You know, it's a, it used to be a public place. I mean, what exactly are we turning into here? So I just think everyone needs to take it down a notch. We need to focus on the crises at hand, which is this public health crisis of COVID-19 and our shaky economy and rebuilding, building back better and having a government that can actually serve everyone. And look, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this on a market show. 
obviously, you know, the markets didn't change on January 6th. You know, we didn't have a big drop, which might tell you something. But on the other hand, we do need to rebuild trust. We do need to rebuild functionality. I legislate in two-year terms. Those are measured on delivery and what I'm doing for people and our economy. Yeah, Congresswoman, I, I want to follow up on that because I, you make a really good point. I mean, I would remind uh, listeners that uh, the District of Columbia actually has some jurisdiction over the federal uh, uh, footprint in Washington, and it is a, illegal to carry a weapon in Washington, D.C., regardless of what the rules of the House or the Senate say. And so uh, these people put themselves into criminal jeopardy you know, by carrying weapons in Washington, D.C., but to follow up on that, I mean, all of this sort of bundles around how do we get things passed in Congress? Um, you don't have a responsibility in the House for confirmation, so the Senate's going to have to take that up. And and as we understand it from reporting, uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi will be sending the impeachment over to the Senate on Monday, potentially, and get that off your books uh, in the House of Representatives. So the the three big priorities, that leaves one, which is the the stimulus plan. And and But put that in the context for us on the likelihood of success of moving quickly on that in the House with the overcast of these kinds of feelings on, this, on the House floor. Can you overcome these suspicions, the concerns, the fears that you have with your fellow members, uh, especially across the aisle, uh, to actually get some of this legislation done in the short term? So I think there's going to be people who we can work with and those who are not committed to working on bipartisan, all-of-government solutions to tackle our largest challenges. And we know who the who's who is. Um, You know, Adam Kinzinger, who's someone I collaborated with before I came into Congress on infrastructure issues, you know, he talks about the politics of of fame that's just poisoning our ability to to govern. And, And I will say, you know, we were supposed to be in session on the 25th. And we were supposed to be in our districts um, the week of um, the 13th when we voted on impeachment. And so these weeks have somewhat flipped. And I think what we get here is some time to heal, uh, some time to recollect our thoughts, um, go within our, our communities as best we can back home, and also spend some extra time reaching out to colleagues. I'll tell you, I... I want a tough re-election, right, for first re-election. They always say that's your toughest one. And I was congratulated by just as many colleagues on my side of the aisle as I was colleagues on the other side of the aisle. I'm, I'm pleased to share that with listeners this evening because that's something you guys can always get to hear. It's so an important I, message. I totally relationships, agree. you know. Yeah, yep. you know, you've got to know who to work with. Yeah. Congresswoman, and I, we don't have a lot of time left, but I think that's a, a really important message to hear. I did want to just ask you, in terms of your work on the Labor uh, Committee and, and the Future of Work Task Force as a co-chair, in, in a, sort of briefly, what are one or two things that you would like to see the Biden administration and Congress do to help workers and the labor force today? we've got to look at wages and we've got to close the skills gap and we're going to have to make up a lot of ground on our technical skills and training for the manufacturing uh, technology jobs that are open right now and they're looking for that talent Uh, we need to plus up the coding programs uh, first robotics that exposes students at a young age and make up for some of the ground that's been lost 
uh, in this pandemic. So the future of work has very much taken on a, a new face in, in the year of 2020 and coming out of it into the, you know, the legislative session that we're in now. It's such a fascinating point, and it's something that very close to my heart. I would love to talk to you again at a future time more about the work you're doing there. And we just want to thank so much the Congresswoman from Michigan, Haley Stevens, for her time on this Friday afternoon. And of course, my colleague, political contributor Rick Davis, and Tyler Deaton, Republican strategist, fundraiser, and president of Allegiant Strategies, for all their help and contributions today. My name is Jeannie Shanzano. I am filling in for Kevin Cirilli. And this is Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.